Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. All right, here we go, everybody. Welcome in. It's David Summers hosting another Studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the story of wrestling in America, as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. Now, we step back into the ring and back into time with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Hey, Ron, what's going on in the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee? Oh, geez, man. Beautiful day today. Um, we've been having some nice ones. I guess you have two down there, man, in your area of the country. Um, pretty warm weather, uh, for, especially for up here in this part of the country. So it's beautiful day. Uh, blue sky, probably 70 degrees. <laughs> no, well, uh, feels a little bit like, uh, like uh, springtime. <laughs> yeah, it's it's nice here. We're uh, maybe a tad warmer than what you are. It's no St. Petersburg, Florida, but it's it's better. And I think our coldest night is like forty nine, so we'll take that. Oh yeah, man. Well, you're better than me. <laughs> I mean, we got the we're going to get down to probably close to freezing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, that's a lot better than it is in a lot of places in the country. That's for sure. And uh, so, uh, yep, doing good, man. Um, just uh, just enjoying it. All right, glad to hear it. All right, a lot to talk about. And and at some point soon, we need to talk about Dothan and the Houston County Farm Center. I don't know if you've heard, Ron, it's going to be torn down soon. So, I mean, that's a legendary building, a legendary place, and, I mean, a hotbed of wrestling for many years, including your family. So at some point soon, we'll... Uh, we'll, I'm sure we'll get a get an opportunity to talk about that. But in the meantime, in the last month of 1977 with our stud cast, number 229, it's been a remarkable year for Southeastern Wrestling with record crowds, tremendous talent, awesome angles. So how are you planning to end the stud cast for this great year in Southeastern? Well, actually, we have three more Wednesdays left in this month. And, uh, and uh, that's the day, obviously, when every new stud cast comes out on Wednesdays around the world. And today we're going to take the four December 1977 Knoxville cards. And uh, we're going to uh, uh, review all those cards. Uh, we're going to give uh, the results of some of the particular matches in those cards. Not every match like we normally do. We're going to change the format a little bit today. And we're going to roll them all into this stud cast. Uh, plus, we're going to add... At today's training in this one, and uh, if we got the time, Dave, we're going to push you in the learning tree as well. So uh, next studcast, uh, it's it's going to be uh, one of those year-end fan favorites, man. Uh, you know the studcast that, that a lot of people, I think, almost everybody that's a fan enjoys these year-end shows, 
in which I kind of go back and review everything that happened. <laughs> and uh, obviously, this is going to be the best one yet because uh, this has been the best year yet for Southeastern. And uh, I'm looking forward to doing that review next week. And uh, I think uh, fans are going to really enjoy that one. Gosh, there's a great numbers are going to be in this one. Okay, so why do you think, I mean, I know it, maybe it's been a really good year, but why do you think it's going to be the best one yet, Ron? Well, you know, obviously uh, it was the best year in so many different ways. Uh, you know, and I, and I got a special announcement today, uh, Dave. Uh, I'm going to be taking for the first time ever off. I'm going to take, and it's been four years, 229 episodes. I have never missed a Studcast. Wait, wait. Are you saying you're going to take a week off? I'm going to take a vacation. First one in four years and 229 episodes. What is wrong with you? Oh, my God. I mean, it seems rotten, doesn't it, man? I mean, wow. I'm taking advantage of everybody. I feel feel a little bad about it anyway, but, uh, you know, and and really, I'm I'm going to see my 93-year, not old, but young mother. Okay. My mother is 93, and uh, and I hope everybody out there forgive me, uh, but it's Christmas, and, uh, you know, I haven't <laughs> seen her in eight months, and, uh, you know, not since I came to Tennessee, so... I'm going to I'm going to take a trip south and uh, I'm going to visit my mom and uh, obviously uh, maybe my brother, too, if he's nice. <laughs> well, OK, you could probably stand another day or two without seeing your your, your brother. I, I, but I can't believe it's been eight months since you've seen your mom. And I'm, I'm I'm losing count on how long you've been in Tennessee. But anyway, listen, I think you finally maybe have earned this particular week off. So you're one of the hardest working guys in show business. No, that was James Brown. You're one of the hardest working guys in podcasting history for your fans. And you certainly deserve a break. So I'm sure they'll be glad to hear your plans about visiting your mom. And maybe we can hear a little bit about that. And maybe even your brother, Robert too, and other family members as well, I presume. Oh yeah. You know, I'm, I'm going to have to go by and visit Rob a little bit. That's for sure, man. Maybe have a toast for the season or something like that. And yeah. Maybe even share a workout or two with him, man, while I'm there, you know, <laughs> maybe we can get in the gym together and, uh, and we can get along uh, well enough to uh, make it through, uh, you know, a, a, gl- a glass of champagne and a couple of workouts. So yeah, but, uh, looking forward to it. Um, uh, and I'm sure it's going to be nice down there, nice and warm, and uh, it'll be a break. Uh, uh, so that, I'm just want to let everybody know so that uh, they know at a time that uh, things are going to be a little bit different. All right. So listen, I think fans are going to be okay with the fact that you're going to take a little bit of a, a break. And so no stud cast Wednesday, December 29th, or during that week for the first time ever. And speaking of being a hard worker, Ron, what have you been doing on your YouTube channel, Southeastern Rewind, lately? I know a lot's been going on. What's up there? Wow, man. Uh, well, first, you know, I want to thank all the great fans out there that are supporting the Southeastern Rewind uh, YouTube channel. Wow. And, uh, new subscribers are being added every day. And uh, I got both, con- I got the Continental and USA TV show, a new one of both every week. And uh, wow. As soon as those things hit, man, they just really take off now. Uh, so it's really gratifying, man, to watch the numbers of viewers that jump up each day, man, after the release of one of those new TV shows. And uh, 
really, really am just enjoying being able to uh, provide all that to fans. Hey, and I know the fans, too, are digging the lar- large number of stud stories that you now have situated on the channel and more coming each week. So the, I know they're loving the stud stories. Yeah, man, and we're, begin- we're beginning to uh, to add a bunch of them now at this point. Uh, I found that fans really like them, and, uh, and at least I'm going to start doing at least two a week. And I'm proud of the series I've been doing about those uh, 11 NWA world champions mm-hmm. that I was honored to wrestle in my 18-year career. We do that. Uh, we've done about uh, three of those champions, and we're about to get into some more of them now. And uh, and I'm just looking to, uh, now to getting into the really popular ones, man. We're going to be talking about Harley Race and the next one, uh, Jack Briscoe, uh, Terry Funk is coming, Ric Flair. Uh, yeah. others i mean so uh that has been a real thrill for me and a real pleasure to do and uh, i've been enjoying it man and listen those are the names that folks are really going to be excited about i know some some of the uh some of your listeners have been enjoying some of the early names that we've been talking about but once as you said as you get into harley race jack briscoe terry funk rick flair it seems like business will really pick up and folks are being related, definitely relating to what's going to be coming on these stud stories. All right. And speaking of stud stories, I love the Andre the Giant Waffle House story. I mean, you could stop right there because that's enough. Vince McMahon Jr.'s disaster on his wrestling company's first trip to Birmingham. That's a great story. And they're, by the way, competing with you in continental wrestling. And then... I mean, I know there are others down the line as well, but tell us a little bit about those those two, Ron. Vince coming to Birmingham and directly competing with you, and then you took Andre the Giant to Waffle House. Oh, yeah, man. (laughs) What an experience. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Andre in the Waffle House, and wow. That's the longest meal I think I ever sat through, man. You know, he ate everything that the Waffle House served. Uh, You know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He ate it all. No, and uh, and then uh, Vince McMahon. Uh, that was really interesting because I had trained so many guys and started so many guys that went to WWE and, uh, mm-hmm. and WWF and and became big stars. And you know, and Vince made his first trip to Continental uh, down to Birmingham, expecting to sell out like he'd been doing everywhere around the country, and it it turned out to be totally different than what he expected. And uh, Got a lot of visit from guys that I hadn't seen in a long time. And <laughs> they saw a full building in Boutwell, and uh, they looked at a at a horrible one across the street in the convention center. Uh, <laughs> but uh, there's a couple of new ones I've got too, Dave. Uh, one of them is about a wrestler that named Charlie Carr, hmm. who trained not only me and my brother, but he trained many family members. Two generations of Welches uh, was trained by Charlie Carr, and uh, and then there in this one episode, this Charlie Carr episode, um, it's a it's a really great story of his because he was actually in Pearl Harbor 80 years ago on uh, December 7th, 1941, actually in the harbor on a ship. Yeah. And uh, it's a great story, man. Wow. Of, of what that was all about. It gives you a real feel for that history there. And then the, the latest one I've done is a. Uh, is a great one too. Uh, it gives me this one gives me the opportunity to bring fans up to date before more 
Continental TVs are released on the Southeastern Rewind channel. Uh, I do one about uh, my relationship with Bob Armstrong and the angles that we worked over a 10-year period of time between his family and mine, probably the longest-running feud in the history of wrestling. Uh, and I'm going to I kind of lay it out for folks uh, how it all started, <laughs> uh, what were the high points, uh, what happened next, uh, Bob's horrible accident where he almost uh, tore his entire face off. No. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, so we cover a lot of things. Uh, so these uh, the stud stories are fun for me. I really enjoy doing them and uh, the fans, I think, are really enjoying them. Oh, no doubt. There's original an original great quality Southeastern TV show from 1978 there, plus never-before-seen 1990s interview with Dory Jr., Terry Funk, about the future of wrestling, plus present stud cast, reviews of a lot of the TV shows, and a whole lot more. Southeastern Rewind is really rocking, Ron, no doubt. Well, you know, it's kind of just getting started, Dave, man. It is rocking, but, uh, wow, there's so far to go, man. It's just going to be so full of programs and things uh, before it's all over. So before we get going today, Dave, uh, I have one more thing I want to briefly talk about. And we're going to do something this coming year that I've never been able to do with the Studcast so far. And I've always wanted to kind of link it up in some way, uh, the present-day Studcast with the past. Uh, so beginning with episode number 231, that's going to be the first episode that we do in uh, 2022. Uh, actually, the date it will air is going to be uh, January 5th, uh, number 231. And uh, what I'm going to do in that one, and hopefully in, the, in a lot of them, maybe all of them after that, is uh, totally link these, this program with where we were 44 years ago on the exact day. So this uh, program uh, of January 5th, number 231 uh, Studcast, is going to be about the event that took place on January 1st, 1978, 44 years ago hmm. uh, earlier. And uh, I think we're going to try to do that uh, so that it's easy and simple for people to understand it will always be 44 years almost to the day when we're talking about Knoxville <laughs> matches. Uh, uh, and uh, and that, I think that's going to be, uh, be really make it easier for people to, to uh, be able to uh, uh, get acclimated where time frame we're in. Yeah, so the exact same time period in the year except 44 years earlier. I think that's a great idea, Ryan. So after next week's studcast, when we put out a new studcast each Wednesday, starting January 5th, 2022, we'll be talking about what happened in Southeastern that exact same week, 44 years earlier. That's going to make it a lot easier, I think, for everybody to keep up with. So I think that that's a cool way to go. So where we where do we ride to today, Stud? Well, man, we're, we're going to ride back into time, Dave, like always, to the month of December, 1977. And we're going to begin with uh, today's training session. Uh, and uh, today's training is going to be about the business lessons. I, I was learning while trying to purchase this territory, this second territory. Uh, and uh, so we're going to be talking about that in today's training. And we're going to be working our way through finishing the year of 1977. There are four cards left. 
four matches left in December of 1977. And we're going to talk about the specific matches, uh, those four specific matches. And then we're going to jump ahead about eight years at the end of the program. Uh, from our 1977 time frame, we're going to jump to 1985 for a learning tree question. And this question is, is about one of the most flamboyant wrestlers since Gorgeous George. <laughs> uh, and uh, undoubtedly, he's just right up there with Gorgeous George. Uh, we got a question about uh, how I got uh, involved and learned about exotic Adrian Street. Ah, okay. So it sounds like another great one today. So let's get old school. What about today's training? What's it all about? Well, it's all about the final stages, man. They're trying to purchase, uh, finish the purchase of the right territory, man, uh, to build, uh, to have future success. Uh, and uh, all this has just come down now to the end of the December in 1977. I've been working on this project and, and uh, talking to people and uh, dealing with it for seven, eight months now. And, and it was an extremely busy month for me in December. I'd lost to lose or leave town. I wasn't doing a whole lot of wrestling, but I was doing quite a bit of wrestling too. And we're going to get to that in just a second. But I mainly had a lot of phone calls, um, especially the month of December, man. We're, we're in the last phase of trying to make a decision here. And uh, I was calling back and forth with Eddie Farhat, who is the sheik, uh, about his Ohio territory. And uh, then I was also on the phone with Lee Fields, who's one of my family members in Alabama, about his Gulf Coast territory. So I'm, 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 uh, I've got to make a decision at this point. And, uh, and it's uh, really, really important that I, I, don't, uh, I don't delay any further. So I was also doing some uh, wrestling in the ball place of St. Louis. Uh, during the month of December in 1977, I was flying to St. Louis on December 4th, on December 9th, on the 11th, and on the 17th. Uh, three of those were for TVs, and one of them was for a house show in Keele Auditorium, which was on December 9th. It was a six-man tag. My partner was the former world heavyweight champion, and we've already done a super – a. Uh, a uh, stud story about him, and that's Pat O'Connor mm -hmm. is my partner. Uh, Rufus R. Jones is uh, the other partner. And uh, we beat a team with John B Jimmy Valiant, Roger Kirby, and Bob Brown. Mm. So uh, after that TV on the 17th, the last time that I was there, I stayed overnight, and I flew the next day to Detroit, Michigan, to wrestle against, of all people, the assassin. And oddly enough, it was the same assassin, Jody Hamilton, that was presently working for me in Knoxville. So I'm up there in Detroit, and he's <laughs> up there in Detroit, and we end up getting booked against each other. Uh -oh. And uh, and he'd been trying to get into the Sheik's territory for three months, and I, I kind of got him before the Sheik uh, did. And, I, you know, I, I said, come and check it out here, Jody. Uh, uh, I think we got a good spot for you, Don Carson, as the as your, as your partner and uh, Ron Wright going to manage you. And, uh, you know, he, he saw it. He, so, you know, uh, so, uh, you know, he got to Detroit and, uh, and he, that was supposed to be a starting date there for him. And uh, <laughs> he sat in the dressing room with me and he said, Ron, he goes, I I'm going to do something I've never done. I'm going to give a notice on my starting date. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he basically had to tell the sheik that night that, uh, uh, I know I'm supposed to be starting here, but uh, but I'm I'm not coming. 
Oh, okay. And I doubt he told him that he's coming to my territory. I don't know. He might have. But uh, so I spent a lot of time that particular night talking to the sheep uh, during the matches. And, you know, there was a big card in Cobo Hall, beautiful arena in Detroit. And uh, it, it wasn't a good conversation, man. Uh, he demanded uh, he wanted $100,000, and then he made a demand that he wanted all of it in cash, and he wanted it up front. And uh, and I'd already encountered some problems getting on any TV in Ohio at this point. I'd been to several TVs. I wasn't able to get on TVs, and it was because of the way he'd been running his business for years. He'd run it into the ground, man. His TV show was terrible. His talent was bad. And every night, his own matches were all the same, man. They were short matches. They had absolutely no wrestling in it. Uh, and uh, usually didn't even get to the ring before he would fight back to the dressing room. And uh, and they'd be bleeding to him and his opponent. So they were doing everything you could do wrong. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and, and when I got to visit in the TVs, I started to understand how bad it was and how wrong it was. So he was definitely not the owner of a territory that you would want your wrestlers to emulate. You know, he was certainly no Eddie Graham as an example. (laughs) He was, he was, he was a bad dude. If you went out there and watched his matches, uh, you know, you didn't want to go out there and have a match like he had because it was really not a good thing. So his alive events, they were extremely small. I mean, his crowds were just, terrible you know and he was losing money every night so i spent the night the rest of that night in detroit and i flew out the next morning i caught a plane the next morning and made the reservation that night to mobile alabama i flew from uh, the great lakes to the gulf of mexico hmm. and uh ohio was eliminated at that point as a potential territory for me <laughs> All right, so it sounds like you were kind of determined to start something new, another territory, Ron. Well, yeah, I, I'd spent, like I said, a whole lot of time in 1977, uh, but uh, trying to find something. But I was also watching my business grow, man, dramatically. Wow, I was going crazy. So I, I was at the point where I was turning down great wrestlers, man, guys that were begging to get into Southeastern. And, uh, you know, I'd, at this point, I developed a pretty good business model, man, and I wanted to duplicate it, man. And uh, I was confident that I could build another Southeastern, that I could be successful in two territories at once if I get the right one. So once I get down to Mobile, I spend four days and nights uh, in the Gulf Coast Territory with Lee Fields, part of the time, spending nights with Lee. And the other part, spending nights with one of my lifetime, my dad's lifetime friend, an old Dyersburg, Tennessee, where I was born, guy named Rocky McGuire that uh, ran, helped them run that Gulf Coast territory down there. And uh, mm-hmm. Rocky's been doing that for years for him. So Rocky was carrying me around during the day. And at night, sometimes I would spend the night with Lee and we'd talk business. Hmm. But uh, I was getting to see what was going on. And uh, he took me to three TV stations in that er- in that territory. And uh, they were stations that had, had wrestling for years. And uh, I sat down and I met with the general managers, the sales managers, and the program directors, just like that there was no television shows there already, you know. But uh, 
really didn't tell people that I was about to take over things, but I wanted to let them know what my product was going to look like. So if I did the deal with him, <laughs> so, so what happened is uh, we went to, into these three TV stations, uh, sat down in a big conference table, and uh, I took in a, tele- a television program from Southeastern. And, uh, and they put it up on those screens. They, all these conference rooms, is, you know, they were definitely set up to show tapes, and so everybody got to see the show at the same time. And, uh, you know, the Gulf Coast show, the TV show there, uh, it was it was not the best, man. <laughs> you know, um, you know, and uh, it was kind of like a lot of TV shows around the country at that point. Uh, there was kind of long on dead matches and and definitely short on technical advances and sometimes in good talent as well. So I had that recent tape with me and they put it up on the screen there and uh, and Rocky McGuire set in on these meetings. He watched them with me. And the first time we left the first station, he's, he was, he says, Ron, my God, he goes, I've never seen a wrestling show like that. He goes, wow. He goes, you know, and then uh, they, all the other people, you know, those other guys, obviously they were getting the old Gulf Coast shows and they had never seen anything like it either. They'd never seen an animated opening. Uh, and we discussed this with, with three different television stations when it was over. They were like, wow, uh, was that an animated opening that you had on that show? I mean, uh, and then the guy says, you know, <laughs> one of the stations, uh, that that was the instant replay. How do you do an instant replay? <laughs> uh, and then one of them in one station uh, recognized, he said, wait, that's a chroma key background you're using on the opening of that show because – Wow, what a beautiful shot that is, you know. And uh, hmm. and then uh, I I got all of it. I mean, split screen. Somebody mentioned, gosh, that's a split screen. You got two things going on at the same time. <laughs> and then uh, they saw the personality profile, and they were going, wow, I've never seen that in a wrestling show. What's that all about? Uh, then they see Eddie Studios uh, interviews from two different studios, and uh, you know, and then they certainly had never seen the kind of wrestlers we had. Out in southeastern yeah, Texas, yeah, you know? so yeah. every station ended up when we left there going, uh, uh you know, Rocky, um, where could we get a show like that? <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I, so hmm. so it was a, it was a world of way from that that uh, the the uh, the greeting that I was getting in the Ohio TV stations hmm. where they said, no, we don't want anything to do with wrestling. No, it's, it's just not going to work. It's not going to work. We don't want to be involved with it. Yeah. Uh, instead, these people are going, wow, this is a great show. Who, 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 who where could we get this? You know? So, uh, so it turned out to be a, a good meeting and, and it turned out to be a great four days. So, I closed out my due diligence, man. Uh, I had done, I'd been with Rocky. We had been to the buildings. We'd seen the arenas. Uh, the old farm center that you just mentioned, man, was one of the buildings that we went to see. And uh, on Feb- December 23rd, 1977, I sat down that night with Lee Fields and I finalized the deal to purchase his territory. And, uh, and it was the same offer money-wise as I had made to buy a Knoxville, exactly the same amount of money and with the same payments. So I agreed to take over the first week of March 1978, and we were going to open up in Dothan, Alabama on March the 3rd, my 30th birthday, hmm. 1978. Huh. So I basically purchased everything 100 miles north of Montgomery down to the border 
uh, from both sides of the state's border down to the Gulf of Mexico, uh, east uh, to just uh, just west of Tallahassee and uh, west uh, into the little towns just uh, right around Mobile down there on the coast of Mississippi around Mobile. So I flew home to Knoxville the next morning and uh, I had bought myself another territory. <laughs> All right, so that's kind of laying out the history of wrestling in that part of the country, Stud. I can't wait to hear how you're going to make a success of what you bought that day, then add the rest of Alabama, and finally grow all the way north from there to where the original Southeastern Territory ended in Kentucky, all in the next eight years. That's amazing. All right, so where do we ride to next, Stud? We're going to break down Southeastern's month, December of 1977. Uh, so let's start with the four events in that month and uh, who was on the cards for those four events. So December 2nd is the first December event, 1977. We're in the Coliseum for the fourth week in a row. That was just unheard of for that time of year. I mean, uh, people around the country suffer so badly in, in November and December usually in wrestling territories, and we were just lit up and on fire. We were able to be in the Coliseum in the first week in December. I mean, wow, the people people that knew about Knoxville wrestling were amazed. They were blown away by that. So this was the next event after the Thanksgiving night match, for, which was in the last Tudcast. And in this night, it opened up with Roy Lee Welch wrestling against Larry Cheetah. And that was the guy with the bald head now that uh, – my brother had beat on the opening match Thanksgiving night, and they shaved his head off. <laughs> you know? so, uh, and this match between Roy Lee and Larry Cheatham ended up in a 20-minute draw. Hmm. Uh, Rick Gibson uh, battled against the pro, and Gibson won that match. Tony Charles and the Irish Pat Barrett were booked against each other again after the Thanksgiving time limit draw. They'd had a very, very... Uh, wonderful Thanksgiving draw that was just a beautiful wrestling match. And this time you've got two baby faces that's going to be in a Texas death match. Mm. So <laughs> wait, Ron, why would you book two great baby faces, uh, as you said, against each other in a Texas death match? Were you, I mean, were you wanting the fans just to see these two fight? <laughs> Well, that, that's a good way. Come on, they, boys! You know, uh, you know just because <laughs> just because of that, it happened to be a Texas death rules didn't mean it had to turn into a fight. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, right? Uh, you know, there was no reason that these two guys and they had been friends for many, many years and wrestled against each other in Europe for oh, no telling how many times. You know, so there's no reason they couldn't have a clean match and just focus on trying to work on one body part. And win fall after fall and keep working on that body part until the opponent can't get up, you know. So it turned out to be a tremendous match. In fact, hmm. I, I want to talk about it a little more when I get through the rest of this card. Uh, so uh, also on this card, uh, this is December 2nd, Coliseum, mm -hmm. Southeastern Tag Championship match. It was Thunderbolt Patterson, and he had formed a partnership with my brother Robert to take on the champions, Don Carson and the Assassin, managed by Ron Wright. Uh, Thunderbolt is going to become a very vocal mentor to my brother, man. He's going to help him become a better wrestler. Uh, Thunderbolt was a 
fantastic wrestler and uh, had a great reputation. Everywhere he went, he got over. He was he, he was a money maker, mm-hmm. and uh, and he had a lot of things going for him. And uh, you know, he's going to help Rob quite a bit. So this ended up in being a forty-five minute time limit draw, man. Great tag match. Time limit ran out at 45 minutes. And, uh, you know, so, uh, there's going to be back. They're going to be doing it again. Uh, next one was Mr. Knoxville, Ronnie Garvin. And he was returning again to face his former partner, Bob Orton Jr. And he had beat him Thanksgiving night in that fall, fall, your fall could count anywhere in the Coliseum match where he actually threw him over the second balcony under the floor below and then jumped off on him. So, uh, you know, <laughs> so, you know, he had, he had to, to make, he was in this time, it was a submission only match, a little bit different that the only way you could win was by making the opponent give up. And, uh, and, uh, he had to make the opponent to give up to win. And Mr. Knoxville, he was able to do it again and beat Bob Orton again. Uh, Joe LaDuke won the non-title match, which was the main event that night with Stu Stomper, managed by Gorgeous George Jr. And uh, he had beaten him on Thanksgiving night. Uh, LaDuke beat Stomper. Uh, It wasn't for the title. This one was for the belt. And uh, they were returning for only their second match together in months, man. They had been almost four months with no matches against each other, uh, basically since the blockbusting incident. And uh, this one ended up in a double disqualification. Okay, without a doubt, that's another great card. Are we going to talk about the the TV thing for this one? Well, I think we're going to change things up here a little bit, Dave, uh, so so we can get all four of these December 1977 cards into this one stud cast. Mm, so, okay. so let's highlight one of the matches from this card before we introduce the next one. Before we go into the next card, let's talk. And I would mentioned that this Texas death match, and you had mentioned that, you know, kind of crazy to have two baby faces. So the Texas death match you, you mentioned between Tony Charles and Irish Pat Barrett, it was maybe the most talked about match of that entire night. That's amazing to think that that would be the case, but wow, Knoxville fans were becoming real wrestling fans. Uh, it was a clean rep. Clean wrestling match all the way. And uh, Barrett worked Tony Charles' arms, and he stayed above his waist. His shoulders, arms, uh, he was he, he attacked kind of the upper body of Charles. And Charles had probably a little better plan by design. He worked the legs of uh, Pat Barrett uh, for the entire match. And the longer the match went, the more use, man, both of them had for that wicked European forearms, man, that they were throwing on each other. And uh, now it was... You know, uh, I love the I love the sound of those thuds from the body, man. When those guys would throw those things, and uh, so Barrett, in the course of this Texas death match, he took several falls by submission. After punishing Charles's arms and shoulders, he couldn't pin him, to, you know, but he could make him give. And uh, Charles stayed, uh, continued to work on Barrett's legs. Uh, and as the match progressed, then Charles finally began to take control, man, with the whole series of submissions and because it was a texas death match it didn't make any difference whether you gave up that wasn't how you lost the match you could give up 50 times but if you could get up uh, after the 30 second rest period then the match was still on so uh, that's what happened in this particular texas death match uh, didn't make any difference uh, how many times that either one of them gave up but uh finally toward the end barrett had 
real problems getting up after that 30 second rest period. And, uh, at the end of it, uh, you know, uh, it, um, it, uh, uh, Charles, Charles was able finally to take it, uh, you know, and Tony had been in Southeastern much longer than Barrett and he was a crowd favorite in spite of the fact that Barrett wasn't breaking any of the rules and fans loved him too. Uh, it was a real, it was a real different match to watch. And I was able to be able to see this one from back in the curtain, man. And, uh, and it was a wonderful match for fans. Uh, it was so much great wrestling and, and, and throws of all kinds from the Europeans, man. And every time they did one of these crazy throws, that crowd would come up to their feet, man, again and again. So the match probably went about 45 minutes before Barrett because Charles had just continually worked his lower body and especially his legs. He just couldn't look, couldn't any longer get to his feet. After the 30-second rest period, uh, he finally wasn't able to get up. The referee um, raised Tony's hand in victory, and the crowd exploded. And they exploded because they had seen an unbelievable wrestling display that lasted 45 minutes, and two guys given their everything that they had. But uh, as soon as they exploded, their enthusiasm kind of quickly disappeared because uh, Barrett couldn't get up. He couldn't get up, you know, and even with Tony's help, he couldn't get up. So he had to be carried from the ring on a stretcher. And uh, and, and it was a, what a scene this was. They put him on the stretcher and they, they, they started to carry him to the dressing room and Tony Charles uh, wouldn't leave him. Tony Charles walked with him and held his hand all the way to the dressing room. Wow. Uh, wow. And in all my years of the sport, man, I never saw many things that affected a crowd like the end of that match did. Everybody in the building was on their feet, and people were crying. People had tears in their eyes. And uh, from watching, of all things, a babyface match. I mean, it, it was Pat Barrett's last match in Southeastern. Mm -hmm. And for any of my wrestling companies, he never wrestled for me again. He was a tremendous talent, man. And, uh, and it just was a phenomenal scene as a wrestling promoter to see uh, thousands and thousands of people accept a baby face match that way. Just, it made me feel like I was accomplishing something in, in that city. Okay, so that, I mean, just a great card. Obviously, that match was one of the highlights of the whole evening. What was the attendance that night? Well, it was about 5,300, man, uh, which is, wow, for us, you know, early in December, uh, December 2nd, man, 1977, uh, uh, an absolutely uh, unbelievable uh, number there for that. Yeah, I mean, to, to be able to keep fans' attention over the holidays and get them to come back and into the match in early uh, to the matches in early January, that seems like a... a uh, that, that's that's a great night. All right, and this looks like a good place for a break. And as we do, let's remind you, as we take our break, to find Southeastern Rewind on YouTube, subscribe, ring the bell to get reminders on when the greatest stories in wrestling will be dropped on YouTube. And make sure to tell your friends about Southeastern Rewind as well. All right, we'll be back. This Studcast will continue in moments right here. Hey, Studcast fans, the Stud would like to thank everyone who has subscribed to Southeastern Rewind on YouTube. If you haven't, please take a couple of minutes to do so if you'd like to help Ron. It's simple, easy, and best of all, it's free. Go to YouTube on the internet and search Southeastern Rewind. Click on it. 
hit the subscribe button, and ring the bell icon. If you haven't been there, you'll be amazed at all the different things there that were created by the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Famous TV shows from Southeastern, Continental, and USA. Someday, there will be hundreds of TV shows with thousands of wrestling stars. Please help the stud today by simply subscribing to Southeastern Rewind on YouTube. Thanks to everyone for your consideration. All right, welcome back once again. David Summers with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, another stud cast. And stud, we are up to the next card, and I think it's December 7th, 1977. Lay it out for us. All right, so we're back in the Coliseum again for this next one. And now Roy Lee Welch is in a return match after the draw he had the last week with Larry Cheatham. And uh, this time Roy beats him in the middle. Uh, so Ricky Gibson uh, faced uh, a much improved guy that hadn't been there in quite a while who was really getting a lot better. And that's David Schultz. One of his first matches in quite a while in Southeastern at this point. But uh, David wasn't quite uh, improved enough yet to beat Ricky Gibson. Uh, Ricky had been wrestling probably maybe 10 years longer than David at this point. So Tony Charles met the pro. Uh, they had wrestled many times, and again, Tony won. Uh, There's a Southeastern Tag Championship. Uh, it was a no time limit because these guys had wrestled to a 45-minute time limit the week before. And it was again Robert. And Thunderbolt Patterson against Don Carson and the Assassin. Uh, this time, Ron Wright was barred from ringside. It's a championship match, and uh, and I'll talk about this match in the midst. This match a little bit uh, later when we finish this card. Uh, next match was a Southeastern Championship match. Joe LaDuke again versus the Stomper after their double DQ from the week before, and this one ended up in another double disqualification. But this time, they held the belt up. So they didn't do that before. And uh, so we're going to find out uh, what's going to happen with that belt down the road here. The main event was a steel cage match. Mr. Knoxville against Bob Orton Jr. Uh, Mr. Knoxville uh, had uh, three straight wins against his former partner at this point. And, uh, and, and, and a quick note. On what I think fans probably enjoyed the most on this card, I think the the one uh, the, the match that I really think they really got into was the deal with the Devil Trio, man. Ron Wright, Don Carson, the Assassin. <laughs> uh, they were the hottest heels in the territory at this point. And mm -hmm. uh, with Ron Wright being barred from ringside for this match, it kind of gave fans hope that somebody was going to stop the momentum these three guys had. They were on fire as heels, and uh, everything was going their way. So I wasn't in Knoxville for this particular card. I was wrestling in St. Louis that night, and uh, I was staying there for the weekend because I was going to work on their TV uh, two days later on a Sunday. So Robert told me about it a couple of days after I got back from Missouri. He said the building erupted, man, when the referee counted out Don Carson. Uh, Robert hadn't been, and the ref counted him out. He said it was an explosion in there, man. The fans just wanted to see somebody beat these guys. And, you know, he said it took several minutes for him and Thunderbolt to get through the crowd and back to the big curtain at the back of the Coliseum. He said uh, they just fans were just all over him. And, and then he said Patterson the next day on TV did a great job on the personality profile. And uh, I guess they probably showed him winning the championship, no doubt. And uh, and uh, he said that Patterson uh, kind of uh, 
He kind of explained uh, to not just him, but to Les and to the audience, too, uh, about he gave him a little lesson, man. He said about, uh, you know, allowing guys like Carson and Ron Wright and the assassin to control your thoughts and how, how bad that was for you and how it made it changed everything for you as a wrestler. And, you know, he had some advice at the end of it. Rob said he he said, you know, you control your thoughts, you control your anger, and when you do, you're going to control your wrestling future. He said it was a great line. He said uh, everybody, uh, even less, was like, wow, it's pretty cool. So Yeah. it's. I mean, to me, it sounds like Thunder Thunderbolt was a bit of a philosopher. I mean, maybe he didn't look like a philosopher. All right, so what was the attendance for the this card, this last card, and, and the next card in the big, big uh, month? Okay, uh, the attendance uh, was just over 5,000. Now, it had been 5,300 last week. It held up at 5,000. Now we're in December 9th. Wow, way into December, the month of December. It, it's, it's just absolutely unimaginable for most cities in America two weeks uh, into December to draw 5,000 people for an event. Uh, it was normally the worst month of the year until Christmas night, and everybody's business picked up at Christmas night. So the next event was on the following Friday, December 16th. This one went back into Chihuahua Park because the Coliseum was unavailable. They had some Christmas events in there every year, and uh, it was difficult sometimes right before Christmas to get all those dates. So we go back to the park in the uh, Jacobs building. And then Old Star returned for this one in the first match, Mike Stollins. Mike Stallings opened the card against Tony Charles, and Tony was just too darn good for Stallings, man. But uh, Stallings still had had to had it, boy, and he could still get it done, and he had the fan support as well. So, uh, you know, they remembered him, and they still liked him. Joel Duke didn't return against the Stomper this week. The reason for it was the small Jacobs building, it just wouldn't hold enough fans to justify turning away hundreds, maybe even thousands, especially after many of them might stand out there in the cold waiting to get a ticket and then be told it's sold out. So uh, we changed the card up a little bit because we didn't want it to sell out uh, hugely. So we put LaDuke against the pro, and he hadn't wrestled the pro in many, many months, but uh, LaDuke won strong man with his bear hug, had a big win. Ricky Gibson got the shot at the stomper. Uh, managed by Gorgeous George Jr. He, he got the shot that night because, again, we didn't want that big, strong card and the potential of having fans getting turned away. So the stopper won. But it wasn't without a lot of help from Gigi. And uh, all that help from Gigi brought Joel Duke down to the ring, and that kind of set things up for the next week, which is going to be the last show in December. The Southeastern Tag Championship return match that night with new champions, Rob and Thunderbolt Patterson, uh, they put up their belts against the former champions, Carson and the Assassin. And this time, Ron Wright was going to be back in their corner. And that was all it took. <laughs> Old Ron, man, he, he stole he stole the belts again. And he his team walked out of there carrying the belts. So the main event was a very unusual return cage match. Uh, and this one, this cage match, same two guys, Bob Wharton Jr., Mr. Knoxville. This one could only be won when one opponent had to be carried from the cage. So it wasn't just that you pinned somebody. Uh, 
somebody had to be carried out before it was over. So no matter what it took to make that happen, uh, Mr. Knoxville obviously was face-to-face again with Bob Orton Jr. And uh, this time, uh, he ended it for good, man. He, he ended this war between him and Bob Orton Jr., you know. And uh, he did it by, he used that knee drop again, Dave, but he, mm-hmm. he didn't do it from the top rope. He crawled up and stood on the top of the cage. Oh. Which put him up about six feet higher. Whoa. And he came off the top of the cage in his throat. <laughs> oh, and, my uh, God. And they carried him out. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, uh, and it was going to be a long time before Bob Orton Jr. came back for Southeastern Wrestling. Uh, so, you know, that match, uh, the match of the night, obviously, was that second cage match in a row. And uh, Mr. Knoxville, Ronnie Garvin, uh, he had really gotten himself back over as a heel. He'd gotten six straight wins in a row over this very good wrestler, man, Bob Orton Jr. And these guys were great friends. So they were good enough friends that Bob Orton Jr. kind of basically saw to it personally that when he left the territory that Ronnie Garvin was going to be stronger than ever, you know. And he not only got carried out that night, but he bled all over the ring. And Ronnie... uh, didn't didn't lose lose a drop of blood, and he totally dominated him in that. Wow! Match, you know, and what happened was exactly what every great worker ought to do when he left the territory. Uh, Bob Orton Jr. That's leaving the territory uh, in good shape, and what happens is you get invited back. You know, and uh, yeah, yeah, boy, he he really did a fine example of putting Ronnie Garvin over six weeks in a row. Yeah, and, uh, wow, it's going to make Garvin a big star, bigger bigger than ever. Yeah, I mean, so Orton really did the number the right way on the way out. What was the attendance for this one? And what about the the last Knoxville card, December of seventy seven? Okay, uh, thirty eight hundred was in the Jacobs Building. That's how I parked that night, you know, and uh, we're fast approaching Christmas Day at this point. You know, uh, uh, this is the 16th of December, and uh, we've been uh, running every Friday night schedule since May of 1977, except for the Thanksgiving Thursday a month earlier. Uh, and if, uh, if so, you know, the attendance uh, at 3,800, gosh, that building was made to hold about uh, 3,200. So, you know, it was packed. It was packed, but, uh, you know, uh, so, you know, we had a, if we were going to stay on our regular Friday schedule, we would have come back on the 23rd of December. And if we had done that, that would have been just two days before Christmas. That's an absolutely terrible day to try to run a wrestling event two mm-hmm. days before Christmas. Yeah. So close to Christmas. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. So I decided to back off. Two days later than the normal Friday and run that last show of December 1977 on Sunday afternoon, Christmas Day. And, uh, you know, gosh, what, that made such a phenomenal difference in the entire thing. So it made even more sense because we always were going to move anyway on Sundays at 3 o'clock in the afternoon in January into the Coliseum. And, uh, and we're going to stay there on Sunday afternoons all the way through the winter. So we basically started our Sunday afternoon schedule just one week earlier. But instead of having to compete with Christmas, 
we took advantage of the holiday and we really made it a jolly Christmas, man, for not just the fans, but for the wrestlers too, man. That's awesome when you got the wrestlers leaving feeling good uh, uh, in a Christmas situation like that. That's a great idea. So I'm sure your crowd was a lot larger on Christmas Day than if you had run two days before Christmas when it would, to me, be extremely difficult to keep their attention. Plus, you were establishing your Sunday schedule a week earlier, and you would be coming back, I assume, into the Coliseum on the following Sunday, January 1st, New Year's Day, another big one, where you're taking advantage of another holiday. Boy, you and Mr. Pickles, man, are running away with it. Slim, yeah. You got the picture, man. (laughs) You know and it was a beautiful one at that, man. That's a beautiful picture, man. So December 25th, 1977, on Christmas Day, we ended Knoxville's record-setting year of 1977. Obviously, we had shows the rest of that week. And in those shows the rest of that week, Dave, we did, uh, we did almost 20,000 people in, in six more cities. We run on Christmas Day and we ran uh, 10 straight days in a row after Christmas Day on into January wow. before taking a break. Yeah. So uh, so here's that card on Christmas night, Christmas uh, afternoon, I should say, uh, uh, in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, Chill High Park. And it was much smaller than the normal Knoxville card. Uh, and I wanted it to be that way because it was a great day to have wrestling. And, uh, and, and you didn't need to have a great card because if you're running on Christmas Day, you don't have to have a great card. You're probably going to sell out. I only put four matches on the card. And uh, that normally we've been at six or seven matches. So Tony Charles opened up the afternoon against a wrestler that had lost his hair on Thanksgiving night, the bald-headed Larry Cheatham. You know, and, uh, <laughs> Tony sent another opponent. Now, Pat Barrett, he sent last week, uh, not on purpose, but Pat Barris uh, was gone from Southeastern. And Tony, uh, that day, uh, puts one of those crazy throws on Larry Cheatham. And uh, he stre- they got to stretcher him to the dressing room, man, in the first match of the night. You know? And uh, and him, the Cheatham, just like Barrett, he's never going to return to Southeastern. <laughs> They're never going to see this guy again. So, uh <laughs> Ricky Gibson and Roy Lee Welch, uh, they were facing off against the first tag team that that I wanted to get a look at for a potential spot in the new territory that I just purchased from Lee Fields. Uh, and so I made this deal uh, uh, just before Christmas, and I had these guys on the card. And they'd been patiently waiting for months to get into Southeastern. And uh, they were two very impressive, huge guys, man, both of them around 300 pounds. Uh, T.O. and Reno, the Samoans, man. Those were nasty-looking guys, and what a great team they were. <laughs> yeah. You know, so they proved to be a great team in their first match, too. They beat Ricky Gibson with a series of headbutts, man. And they double headbutted him, one on one side of his head and one on the other. I've Ooh. never seen that before. Wow. Okay. Talk about busting a coconut. Jeez, <laughs> man. It, it, it was scary to see. <laughs> Oh, and then, uh, you know, there was a no, D- no DQ match uh, was next with Joe LaDuke uh, facing off against the Mongolian Stomper again, managed by Gorgeous George Jr. And uh, notice, Dave, uh, this wasn't for the belt. 
this is just a no DQ match, and uh, it's not the belt because mm-hmm. it wasn't necessary for us to fill the Jacobs building. I mean, uh, so uh, it, you know that building was just too small for us. I mean, but it must have bothered you a little bit that you're not able to get into the Coliseum for these big holiday events. Where I mean, the draw could have been way bigger. Oh, of course, man. Of course, it did. You know, uh, but but things were changing, man. Luckily, things were really changing for Southeastern. The company was making a big impression on the Coliseum management because it was showing its ability to fill that building. They didn't get many pay things in that Coliseum that could fill that building. And we were the only tenant to consistently do that at this point. You know, we were we were filling it just about uh, three out of four shows. So we also had become their biggest customer uh, in 1977. And we held more events in the Coliseum that year than anybody did. So so we had our first Thanksgiving in the Coliseum uh, this this year in 1977. And the next year in 1977, 78, we're going to have both Thanksgiving and Christmas in the Coliseum. So we're going to get a Christmas night in the Coliseum. So... Uh, so let's get, let's get that last match on this Christmas card. Uh, Don Carson and the Assassin had regained the Southeastern belts with their help from their manager, Ron Wright. And they were, you know, and because he was allowed back in the corner for the last event, and they were having to put up their belts against Robert and, and Thunderbolt again. And Ron was the difference again, man. And he, he left his team uh, with the belts again, man. They walked out of there again. So, so I want to go back and let's talk for just a second about the Jolie Duke and Mongolian Stomper match. They always had a violent match with each other. Uh, You know, both men were usually bleeding in every match I think they ever had. Uh, The building was so jam-packed. It was dangerous. I I thought it was really dangerous for them to leave the ring. But uh, those guys were just crazy. Once they got to going, they they didn't care. They weren't scared of the crowd at all. And uh, I was more scared for the crowd than I was for them, to be honest with you. So they left the ring anyway, and because they knew they were going to be on top of the next card, the New Year's Day card, the very first card in 1978 in the Coliseum, they didn't want to leave those fans wanting anything, man. So they went out and gave it gave it all to them right there, man. And uh, so, uh, <clears throat> uh, you know, uh, that attendance on that Christmas card, man, was really amazing. I, I'm sure we would have sold out the amphitheater, man. If it had been warm enough to run outside, it was like ridiculous, you know. And just because it was Christmas Day, and because it was Christmas Day, no fire marshal came because they didn't work in Christmas, right? Okay. So, so uh, we we went ahead and crammed that building. <laughs> we put forty two hundred in that building that was made for about thirty five hundred. Oh. Okay. <laughs> so uh, we also turned away, though, Dave, probably as many people as was inside. Wow. It was just unbelievable. <laughs> man. The sidewalks and the park, they, they, they had stopped the traffic on uh, out there on Magnolia Avenue. Uh, all four lanes were clogged. Wow. I mean, they just shut the, shut that part of town shut down because of so many people trying to get in that little building. Oh, I heard that. I mean, that's amazing stuff because Southeastern obviously was really on fire. So. All right, I think we have time for the Learning Tree question for today. It comes from Gary Burry, and he asked, what did you know about Adrian Street before you booked him in Southeastern Wrestling? 
This was his U.S. debut. Curious to find out who recommended Street to you. So the first time anybody heard of Adrian Street in USA, in, in, in America, as far as wrestling, you're the one who booked him first. Right. Right. You know, and uh, so that's a great question, man. And, uh, you know, obviously, uh, Mr. Burry, uh, you know, he must have just watched recently Continental TV show on Southeastern Rewind because that <laughs> was Adrian Street's United States debut. And I think that's a Continental uh, program numbers, number six or five or six. I can't remember what the exact number is, but it's on Southeastern Rewind. I'm sure that's where he got this question. And so let's start with his first question about what I knew about Adrian Street before he arrived in Southeastern. Well, Southeastern Pensacola had just changed its name to Continental about five weeks before Adrian came to America. And I knew nothing about it until he contacted me and he sent me a video. Called me on the phone and he sent me a video. And and I didn't watch the video for about two weeks. And uh and I finally remembered it. I was headed off to TV on a Saturday morning uh, out of Pensacola going into Dothan. And I, and I grabbed the tape and I took it with me. And when I got to the old TVY, WTVY television station in Dothan, mm-hmm. I went upstairs. I gave it to the director and I asked if he could uh, load it on the tape machine because we had about an hour before the TV show started. And I wanted to take a look at the tape. Mm-hmm. Well, Charlie Platt was happened to be upstairs. So was Rick Stewart, who was another commentator for the show back in those days. Several of the cameramen, maybe all of them probably were upstairs. There was nothing going on. The production guys were all in the control room, but there was nobody paying any attention to what the tape, what was on the tape, especially when it started. So when it began, I sat down there, you know, and uh, it began, it started with him entering an arena in, in Great Britain to a song, and, and a song that I didn't know at the time. Uh, and I certainly didn't know that he not only had written it, but he was singing the song as well. And uh, it was the song, uh, Imagine What I Could Do to You. Oh. And, uh, oh. <laughs> and everybody in the control room stopped talking. All of a sudden, man, they, they, when the song started and he started making his uh, entrance into the ring area, everybody in the control room all stopped talking. They surrounded the monitor, man, and all of a sudden there was dead silence in there. So, so and he was dressed in one of those outfits that he was going to bring with him to America. His face was painted. His hair was in two ponytails, <laughs> two blonde ponytails. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, he, and he danced his way right all the way up to the ring, man. And, uh, and as I watched it, it instantly reminded me of the most flamboyant wrestler in American wrestling history, Gorgeous George. Because right? he had blonde <laughs> yeah. hair and yeah. so many things, the wove, the robe, the way he carried himself. And uh, so... All of a sudden, man, the control room suddenly exploded in conversation, man. As soon as he got to the ring, they began to ask me questions. Uh, everybody was talking at once. But who is this guy? You know, uh, uh, you know, and so I didn't answer any. I just watched. I, I was kind of amazed at what I was seeing, man. So after his match introduction and the bell rang, he made his first wrestling move. And I knew right then he had something special, man. He had all these gimmicks, man, more gimmicks than I'd ever seen any wrestler have. Never seen one of them sing, sing his own song and uh, dance to the ring. And, uh, and more importantly to me, though, than any of that is his first wrestling move was a shoot move. And he took a guy down 
and the shooting moves that I was like, wow, uh, did, did he do that? Man, and I mean, you know, instantly I was like, geez, this guy, could, he, he's got it. So the control room exploded again, man. You know, they, they started again right on me. Hey, are you bringing him here, Ron? Are you bringing this guy to America? <laughs> so it, I didn't have, I t- turned to him finally. I, I finally said something about, you know, hey, I didn't know anything about this guy, man, until the tape ran. But, but I said, after seeing all you guys' reaction here in the room, I think I may need to make one call. Uh-huh. So I got on the phone and I wow. called my friend, Tony Charles who had come from Great Britain to wrestle for me in Southeastern in 1977. He went with me down to Pensacola when we're going to start talking about that in these upcoming studcasts. When we start to open Pensacola, he's going to be one of the guys I take with me to Pensacola in 78. He's going to work years in that territory for me. He's going to buy himself a house on Pensacola Beach, and he's going to live the rest of his life in Pensacola. Wow. So, uh, <laughs> so Mr. Bury, uh I guess this, this this is the answer to your second question. You know, when when I told Tony Charles, I got him on the phone, uh, who it was, and I asked his opinion of whether the guy would be good or not. He asked me, he says to me, uh, he goes, uh, uh, how do you think uh, Adrian Street got your number, Ron? <laughs> and I go, uh, and I go, yeah. oh, wait a minute, Tony. And he, he goes, me and Adrian, we've been friends for years. And, and I mm-hmm. said, well, I do, I do I need to ask if you'd recommend him? And he says, you saw the tape, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> and I, that was, you know, so the rest of it was history, you know. So Cottonelle got one of the best wrestlers and showmen in history. I got new friends for life with Adrian Street, man, and his lovely lady, Miss Linda, man. Well, Great people. And does he still live in that Pensacola area today? Tony? Yeah. Tony's I mean, passed, away, passed on, I'm, but I'll bet you his family still live in that same house. I'll bet you his sons and daughters. Wow. Okay. Still lives there. Wow. But, uh, yeah, Tony, Tony uh, to his dying day, lived right there in Pensacola. Never would leave. He would, wow. He, and he told me all that might because he goes, You've take you've brought me to paradise, <laughs> um, and boy, he really, really loved his Pensacola on the world's most beautiful beaches. All right, what a great story, Ryan! You were extremely lucky to have some of the greatest wrestlers from all over the world that worked in your companies for years and years, and that is absolutely amazing. Okay, folks on Facebook, the only way to become friends with the stud on Facebook is on his Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud or author Ron Fuller Welch page. Simply like and follow him on either or both and you automatically become friends with a legend. On Twitter, follow him at Ron Fuller Welch on Twitter. Get on board the hottest YouTube old school wrestling channel, Southeastern Wrestling. Subscribe today and enjoy great USA, Continental, and Southeastern TV shows from the 1980s in the order they were produced, plus current studcast, historic stud stories, and a whole lot more on Southeastern Rewind. You can also visit the stud store at tnstud.com. That's tnstud.com for all kinds of souvenirs, plus his great novel, Brutus, that you'll leave that it's going to leave you with chill bumps 
running down your spine. Absolutely. And speaking of chill bumps running down your spine, stud, where are we going to be riding next week as we close out 1977 with that great year-end review you do for Southeastern Wrestling? Next week's is going to be 1977. What's it going to be like? Well, I love these, Dave. Uh, these review shows. Uh, wow, they're so much fun. You know, uh, and I get to go back and look at things again. And, uh, wow, I just see things that I didn't see the first time uh, when we went through all these studcasts. So, you know, we started closing out the year with all kinds of results from Southeastern uh, starting in 1974. Well, the time I got there this year, 1977 is a breakout year, man, in every way for us. And uh, next week, uh, we're going to take a deep dive into the wrestlers, the new wrestlers that came, the great angles that we work in 77, the fantastic growth of the business, and uh, much more as we highlight the by far the best year yet for Southeastern Wrestling. And we're going to also look ahead to, to the first event, 1978, which – Dave, when you hear it, and uh, and fans out there, yeah, I think they're all going to go wow. I mean, <laughs> we're starting 1978 bigger than bigger than we ever bigger than 77 ever was. Wow! All right, and don't forget, fans. Next week we will be we will be here as usual, but there will be no studcast on December 29th, 2021. The following week, as Ron will be visiting family in Florida. Okay, any final words, stud? Well, I just want to thank everybody, obviously, for their support and uh, not only the Studcast support, but for supporting Southeastern Rewind on YouTube. And uh, please tell your friends about us. Take care of yourselves and others and may God bless us all. All right. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at David Summers Productions at gmail.com. This Studcast is a David Summers production. For Tennessee Stud, LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.